Hello, we are here. This is Mayday, the Handmaid's Tale podcast. Justin and Tiana here with you, and today we have the honor of interviewing costume designer for The Handmaid's Tale, none other than Ann Crabtree. Ann, how are you doing today? I'm great, and I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you for uh, coming on the show. Uh, (laughs) First thing we wanted to do, uh, I talked to Tiana earlier, and I was like, first thing we have to do is congratulate you on the Emmy nomination. Yeah. Oh, man. Thank you so much. It's my first. It's my first. That's what I. That's what I told her. That seems crazy. You've worked on so many (laughs) huge movies and shows for costume design. You know, I mean, I was gonna say I agree, but I don't. I do, and I don't agree because it's it's like how many people get nominated? Not many, and yet twenty eight (laughs) years sounds like a long time. So yeah, yeah, but Pan Am. Masters of yeah, Sex, yay. Westworld, these are yeah. these are well-known and revered for their costume design. I was going to say, it was interesting to me, oh, when, no. I, when, I, when I looked at it, I was really surprised, A, I, well, one, I was wondering if the internet had their stuff updated, because I could, I could find the Costume Guild nominations, but not your current nomination for the Emmy, so I hope they get that updated. Yeah. Um, and then, I'm not sure. I thought it was interesting that I had a question about the Westworld situation, because Westworld is also nominated for Emmy, and you worked on that show, and I thought you were the lead costume designer, but is that not the case, or is this like a crediting issue? Well, it depends. It depends on what you say lead. So Ah. I I love Westworld. I've loved it since I was a kid, and that show was a beautiful experience. I did the first season, the whole of the first season. There was one designer who did the pilot um, who's been nominated you know, I did, it's a long story. Often when you when you do a pilot, you have to reshoot a lot of it because of change of cast or that sort of thing. So I was a part, a big part <laughs> of the pilot and how, you know, what was shown. And then um, for the second episode of the first season, the production designer was nominated, but I wasn't. So that stung a little bit. But I got a, a beautiful email from him, Zach, uh, who said, you know, I wouldn't be nominated without your costume. So it's it's just a weird, who knows how it all works, folks. I, I am new to this, and I have no idea. But <laughs> yeah, it was hey, interesting. Page is good. <laughs> we, we were going through, we, had it, we did our little, uh, some mini episodes of our podcast for the Emmy nominations when they came out. And it was interesting how... Oh, wow some of it works because you know you get nominated for like you're saying episodes so you're nominated for the pilot person yeah. and not anything else so that makes sense yeah. now that you explain it that way let's get into a little bit of the handmaid's tale stuff because i know you've been interviewed a bajillion times which i think is awesome um let me ask you that question oh, first is is hulu seem to be very uh insistent on putting you out front i think because the costuming for this show was so important and uh, went beyond just like the look, but also was kind of a plot point and a driver of the story. Uh, how did that feel? And is that any different than uh, other shows that you've worked on in the past? That's that's a really very very well put question. So, you know, nothing changes in terms of the work that I do. I, I was thinking about this after getting nominated. You know, I. I said to one of my best friends who is someone that I mentioned as someone giving me my first break in the business. And he called to say congratulations, which meant a lot. And I said, you know, what's weird 
I was excited for the first hour, and then I realized I'm still going to always work the same way. You know what I mean? Like if, whether a job is smaller or larger, certainly uh, the story is small or large, period, or, or present day. You know, every studio wants you to do your best, every company that you work for. And I think the big difference with Hulu is Hulu didn't give me any rules which is astounding, <laughs> and neither did MGM. <laughs> and I think that in and of itself takes away huge barriers to the mind and what uh, is possible. And so that was a very different experience than anything I've ever experienced. I kept waiting, you know, for <laughs> the shoe to drop, as they always say. And yeah. um, I, I never heard anything. And finally, Bruce, I asked him quietly after, you know, this whirlwind of episodes. I said, man, I'm not hearing anything. Like, what the hell? What's going on? And he said, you know what, Anne, there's no notes. Except they want to know. I don't know if it was Hulu or MGM. The only note I got all year long was they want to know why we're not hiring, you know, all size women. And he started laughing, and he's like, I had to tell them that you thought so long and hard about this handmaid's dress that it would fit any shape. And then I, you know, I came out and told them, like, that is absolutely true. Like, I designed for curvy women like myself, but also it was uh, an approach because these people do not have a choice. Like, they're given one thing to wear for the rest of their lives for however long Gilead is lasting and it's the least the commanders could do when designing a dress <laughs> for them. <laughs> like, okay, sister, you're going to wear this forever now. Like, it, it can be ugly. It can be pious. But it, um, you know, just design-wise, if I am Joseph Lyons and creating this idea, I don't want to waste time and or money. They have neither in Gilead. And so good design is important even when it's for prison. You know what I mean? For imprisonment, you have to design succinctly so that it's lasting. Many people can wear it should one die, which unfortunately happens all the time. Uh, so, yeah, it was that was my one and only note. And I had a good backup <laughs> as awesome. to the why. Wow. They were hugely supportive early on. Like I remember talking to them maybe in geez i started in uh, july in toronto last year probably in august they were already talking about the importance of the costumes and bruce miller the show's creator when i met him and warren littlefield in la in may of last year bruce was so all about costumes not just for the handmaid's tale but in life and I had never met a straight man, <laughs> a straight male writer. I know this is terribly, uh, terribly limiting of me to say, but it, it's really the truth. In 28 years, I had never met a straight male writer and creator who could talk at great length about costumes. And he even sort of mentioned specific costumes for both uh, Caitlin Fitzgerald and Lizzie um, Kaplan, the other Lizzie, not Lizzie Moss, Lizzie Kaplan on Masters of Sex. And I thought, you know, how does he know so much about clothes? And then I realized his biggest thing, because Bruce knows The Handmaid's Tale backwards and forwards. He's been, I think, grooming himself for this 
for, I don't know, over 20 years. It could be even 25. He's wanted to do this project, and rightfully so. He did an amazing job. They sat me down, Bruce and Warren, and said, this is very pivotal to the show, the look of this, and we don't want to do what's been done before, and we don't want to have a costume drama. And I basically wept for joy (laughs) (laughs) and said, I'm relieved because I, you know, you know how in Vegas they have a tell, which I always find psychologically very uh, interesting. I have a tell, you know, when I'm creating, when I'm designing, I cannot create falsely. And one thing I would be probably very bad at is, um, designing specific to recreating the past verbatim, you know, like, I don't know what a fashion anthropologist might, (laughs) you know, I, I, my brain just sort of wants to veer off in other directions. So I said to them, truthfully, I think I'm your girl because I don't have an inkling of interest in creating a history of costume on the screen because it's already been done. It's been lived. What I want to do is do something modern. And that was the key, the kind of nucleus for the three of us sitting at that moment. I think it was like an over two hour interview. And really it was like three kids sitting down in a circle saying, what are we going to do? That's so new. What are we going to do? That feels like today, because the story is about today. You know, I think Tiana can especially test. She's a, uh, visual artist herself and so i think she can attest oh, awesome. to to um that creative process and not wanting to rehash things yeah it's you can't hard, be new all the right? time nothing is really new but like you want it to right. feel fresh you want it to feel specific to that thing to that event that's right tiana and i i think i i'm speaking to your artist now i think that even though we all know that nothing is new and, you know, history has shown us that visually, I feel like, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel very strongly, you know, I don't watch certain things. I, I don't want to be influenced in my work uh, in, in any specific way. I want it absolutely to be true to story. But regarding that, I often go to very strange places for inspiration that have nothing to do with clothing because I want it to be freeform and new yeah. and a different take yeah. on things. Yeah. 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 And looking outside of the medium that you're going to be working in can be just so freeing. Oh yeah. And that it, it introduces <laughs> you to new shapes and textures that you, that would never have entered your mind ways that things can play off one another that just doesn't happen in your chosen medium and therefore will be really fresh and new. The Handmaid's Tale is kind of a unique world situation for clothing where it's past now. So they have all the same materials and basic things that we have today, but it still needs to look so puritanical in comparison to what people would choose for themselves today. You are able to get extremely creative with that. Oh, that's really cool. Thank you. (laughs) I'd like to get into the aftermath of The Handmaid's Tale uh, the handmaid's outfit specifically costume um okay. so y- what was your cause, and hulu kind of 
least precipitated this or at least initiated it on, in, in a way, I think. Um, they did all the marketing where they had the handmaids walking around New York prior to the show. Uh, yeah. Um, and South yeah. by Southwest. Right, yeah. and South by Southwest, correct. And subsequently after that, you've seen, uh, I think the first one was in Texas where the women's group has, was uh, dressed as the handmaids and went to the Capitol it protest. Was. And then we've yeah. also got so a group. Yeah, we've also got a group here in Missouri that I think was probably the next one to kind of latch on to that, and they're doing things currently. And so what I would like to know, two things. One, I know that in doing some research for this, there were a number of your uh, costumes that, for shows like Pan Am and uh, Masters of Sex, that uh, actually people in fashion designed around what you've created and made a whole uh, fashion line. Um, But this is a different ballgame. So this is something that you've created that has gone beyond the scope of the show beyond the scope of the fashion world and is out in the real world with people latching onto it as a way of protest and mentally what is that like to see that and how does that just make you feel you know it's crazy i had to stop because i was getting emotional before answering (laughs) which is amazing because the first time uh the thing in texas happened pro-choice america uh narol happened uh I mean, immediately when I came back from Toronto, finishing the season in February, I think it happened a week later, um, I designed the the dresses and the handmade looks that you saw for Hulu that happened all around the country. And subsequently, NARAL, uh Texas contacted me to say, how do we go about this? We're going to protest in the Senate. And we had a conversation about the how. I couldn't help them legally. You know, when I saw that happen a week later, it was so fast. And I think the emotional impact, it's almost like a post-traumatic stress, but let's think of a positive term for that, you know, (laughs) that's symbiotic with the same feeling. It's a, yeah, it's a long-lasting kind of punch to the heart in a good way because it was my reentry into the States after being completely worried for seven months in Toronto as to what was really happening here on the other side of the pond. We were creating our story, which was so parallel to real life, you know, very, very emotional. And I just met with Bruce Miller and Warren Littlefield last week. And I thought it was the only one who was sort of destroyed lying, you know, in fetal position in my apartment when I got back, but that we all were including the writers, you know, and I think it's anytime something is so close to the bone, it will have a long lasting effect on your life. And if you're lucky enough to be an artist to feel that you're so friggin' lucky. And for me to have created something that was so all about disengaging women, taking away, stripping away their power you know, having to do that for work, it was very emotionally taxing to be that person and to to design uh, with the idea of hindering women. For that to turn into a symbolic uh, costume of freedom and power is, I can't even describe it. It is so beautiful and fulfilling. And, you know, I can't take 100%. Uh, I can take, you know pride in that it came from my brain but certainly I didn't write The Handmaid's Tale the the wonderful Margaret Atwood did that years before and to be a part of that I, I don't think I'll ever forget it like not ever 
Um, so a little <laughs> follow up, and I was telling Tiana we're kind of you, uh, our podcast and you are kind of reaching each other at a sort of serendipitous moment um, because totally unrelated to you, um, I had contacted Narl here in Missouri uh, because they yeah. were. Um, so tomorrow, yeah. they are doing a uh, handmaid's protest. Um, oh my so God. what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do was to say to you, if you could speak to these women who are doing this, what would you say to them? If you could just point blank, speak to them and say, here's what I would love to say to you about what you're doing. Wow. You're going to just have a whole podcast full of, you know, me crying the entire time. <laughs> now, right. here's what I want to say. Okay. Listen, I just drove cross country literally not even a week ago um, from Georgia to here and went through Missouri and I wish I could just stop by. I'm not even kidding. Like I always seem to be in the wrong place when these things go down. But anyway, I want to say to them that they are hugely inspiring to me as a whole group for the United States and specific, you know, specific states but you know when their protest happened in Missouri I was putting together a exhibition of my clothing for the Paley Center in Los Angeles and you know we had to do it very quickly and it was like heavy lifting and blah 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 and trying to throw it together and I happened to look you know on Twitter their protest came up and I fell to the ground crying because it was so moving that this was happening and that people were utilizing the costumes to as a means of protest and a means of power and that's what i want to say to them that it has touched me personally a lot of the issues um including you know right to abortion and i was a young girl in new york who had to have two uh because of no insurance and the first one was at Planned Parenthood, and they really helped me. And the second time uh, was not, and it was really dangerous. So I wish I was protesting with them. The issues have touched me 100% personally back in the day and today as a woman who is multiracial with an immigrant parent with many, many friends and family who are in the gay and trans community. And um, I don't know. I, I'm just so moved by all that they're doing. And I I applaud them wholeheartedly and support them. That was beautiful. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I mean it. Um, so you, do, you dovetailed there right into something I wanted to talk about, which was the biracial Japanese heritage thing that I yeah. wanted to get into a little bit. Yeah. But before we do that, I have something that I've mentioned a number of times on the podcast um, when talking about okay. the various costumes on the show. And it bugged me all the way until the uh, second to last episode, I think, when I finally realized that it was <laughs> actually a thing. And that was the high heels <laughs> for the wives. Because oh, okay. I noticed it, and I don't know why I noticed it, but I noticed that like Serena Joy, well, with Yvonne Yastrowski being a fairly tall woman to begin with, was towering <laughs> over everyone. And I was like, okay, she's tall, but that is really tall. And I was like, is that a thing? I just can't tell. And it's not something, you know, the shoes aren't anything that's addressed. But when it came to, the, I think, the ninth episode, when um, Janine gets sent to her new house, yes. Uh, yes. when they walk into the bedroom... 
right before they get onto the bed, the whatever the wife is, she steps out of the heels and drops about six inches. And I was like, yes, it's real. Okay, so <laughs> I need you to tell me if I'm making that up and I saw that and it's not real or if that was intentional. I have only – I was there every day on set. I have seen 100% all of the dailies. Um, I have only in full watched episode one, two – and 10, only because they showed it at an event where I had to talk about it afterwards uh, in New York for Vogue magazine, you know, three through 10, uh, three through nine, I was so emotionally disturbed after watching one and two that I, I knew I had to and should watch it for the press to see how it was edited, you know, how music changes the mood. But I was it was too close to home. It, it emotionally disturbed me at a time when I had just come back. I have not seen nine, which is one of the most seminal episodes and got nominated, you yes. know, also for an Emmy. I am going to have to <laughs> binge watch three <laughs> through nine. I'm probably just going to binge watch all of them, but believe it or not, um, Dorothy Fortenberry, who is one of the head writers uh, for season one and season two, she, when I said that to Bruce and Warren talking on season two, she said, don't do it, don't do it. She's like, I watched all of season one as a binge watch before we started writing. And she said, you know, she was a mess. She was in the corner, like in pieces. And that's someone who helped write that show. Wow. So I, you can see it has this effect. I, I, I sure do wish I hadn't done it just one day to watch the show and see what people feel and or take from it. So I'm so I'm so interested that you caught that. I will say that the idea of heels, I never wanted a super high heel. And I will tell you that shoes became a real issue in Toronto because we had so many oh, I can imagine. Of individual tribes. You know, like, and a lot of them had to be painted to be a certain color, especially the teal. Uh, I mean, you know, you go try to find a hundred pairs of teal shoes <laughs> in one city. But um, for Yvonne, yes, you know, I utilized her towering height. Uh, also, Ever Carradine, uh, who plays Naomi Putnam, who is actually, she and her husband are the most in charge, Serena Joy and uh, Fred. Um, are one step below, but still more powerful. Anyway, I utilized everything in the body. Being from the South, I remember this kind of woman. Uh, she was my kind of second mom, uh, Ona Gibbs. And she was rail thin. She was an artist, and she wore heels. And she would walk really defiantly loud uh, in a way that my mother, who's Okinawan, would not in heels. And she said, you should be able to hear a strong woman come in the room. And I'll never forget that because I was, you know, 15 when I met her. And um, she passed, you know, when I was 21 or no, I might have been closer to 25 when she passed. But she left an indelible mark on me as a woman and what makes a strong and a weak woman. And I'm sure I threw her in to Serena Joy and the commander's wives. 100% when I'm designing, and a lot of it's in a flurry, and a lot of it is, you know, three and four episodes at a time, which is cuckoo. Right. It is so, it is so by the skin of your teeth, as they say, and by your absolute gut 
the decisions have to be made that quickly, and you can't go backwards because you have no time. So I honestly don't remember. It's okay. <laughs> well, and I, your reasoning for having not watched the show is probably shared by a lot of people because um, interacting with people yeah. for the podcast on social media, I know one of my favorite things to do is to go to Twitter, and I'll just search for the phrase starting Handmaid's Tale. And so I'll find people that oh, are wow. just starting, and I'll be like, well, what episode are you on? Because, you know, those first three um, really set the tone and really – paint yeah. the portrait of the horrors of Gilead and especially with the ending yeah. of episode three with Oglin and the uh, general, oh general mutilation yeah. um, I, I always like to point out the fact that oh you're on episode two well let me know when you get to episode three and we'll, that's <laughs> we'll what everybody see. says right oh that God. is that's that is why I didn't watch it yeah it, <laughs> I will tell you this though and I've I, you know I've talked to a number of podcasts um, we talked to an Australian podcast called deviant women which are great I can name check them yeah. um and we did some mini episodes because the show has just been released this month in Australia. And right. so we did some uh, kind of bios on the characters and Margaret Atwood. And I was telling them, you know, this show is disturbing, which is saying something in 2017 <laughs> with what you can do on TV. And I said, but it's not disturbing right. in a Game of Thrones gory for the sake of gore kind of way. It is all in your head. And I think that's where the worst of <laughs> the things happen, you know, because the, the, you can imagine something worse than probably what is really going to happen. Um, so That's you right. saying that and not having watched it makes perfect sense. So don't feel bad. <laughs> okay, good. Thank God. Because I run into a lot of people, especially on social media, who are like, I had to stop for a little bit because it was too much. And I get it. Uh, so you oh, talked okay. about being, A, from being from the South. So I know you were raised in Kentucky. Is that correct? Yeah, it's okay. true. Yes. And so not too far from us here in St. Louis. So not, not that, that far at all. Um, oh, and, yeah. And you, you, you're very upfront, um, like you just were, about your biracial heritage. I know your mother yeah. um, is Okinawan. Now, you have made a distinction between Okinawan Japanese and Japanese in previous interviews oh, that yeah. I've seen. I was just curious Dude. for those people that don't know what that distinction is and why okay. you made it. Well, well, here's the deal. My mom, if she ever listens to this, will probably like kick me under the table because you know, certain people of a certain age might say they're Japanese if they're from Okinawa um, because that's just how they were raised to do that, to be proper. And yet Okinawans actually have a different DNA than the Japanese. It's so far from the mainland. It's the last island from the mainland that I'm trying to remember. It's sort of um, four and a half, five hours from oh, Japan wow. by plane. So you can imagine how far. I mean, they have probably more in common with, say, Taiwan, you know, than Japan. And the DNA thing actually just happened. I read this in this, you know, it's so remote. It's a tiny island. Obviously, there's a city, Naha, N-A-H-A, which is where my mother is from. But the DNA is closer to, what was it, um, uh, in Peru? Really? <laughs> the DNA is closer. I mean, that's kind of exciting and, and wild, you know, um, than with people in Japan. And so, you know, I now and forever will always say Okinawan because my grandmother spoke Okinawan. She did not speak Japanese, which right. says and a I, lot. And I did read that online, so I was kind of investigating that because I was like, what is the distinction there? And Oh, yeah. You know, think – I always say it like this. If you're thinking of the state, think of Puerto Rico and Guam, right? They're, and Hawaii. They are the states, but they are so far that people have their own culture, their own language, 
um, in Okinawa, they actually had their own kingdom, the Ryukyu kingdom, uh, their own rulers, their own language, their own culture, huge culture that is still there. And Japan uh, invaded them and actually made them change their ways. Like my grandmother had tattoos on her hands, and I'm probably going to get those tattoos because it was an indigenous culture. Um, they believed that they could gain power through these tattoos, and it was considered sort of magic, which the Japanese did away with, right, uh, because they wanted people to follow them. And so, um, you know, we are an indigenous, you know, at least my, on my mother's side, family. And so I'm really proud of that. I am a brown <laughs> Okinawan, you know, indigenous person. I am not a Japanese person. And that is, I'm very proud of that. Excellent. And, you know, I, it's yeah. one of those things I latched onto it because, A, Tiana, who we just spoke to, she is biracial as well. She and her mom, uh, her father is African-American, her mother is Caucasian. Um, my wife, okay. um, her grandparents, her m grandmother was Japanese and her grandfather oh, was wow. Italian from the United States. Wow. Uh, so whenever I see something like that, I'm always very interested in yeah. that component of, you you know, the Ann Crabtree DNA, so to speak. I have some curiosities as growing up back then. I know that was it not as big of a deal back then? Because I know with the servicemen coming over and a lot of them married people from over there, women from over yeah. there. So how was that back then um, as opposed to how people would oh, think wow. it was? Again, Justin, I'll say how many hours do you have? Like, <laughs> no, it's a loaded question. Or a script that I would love to write because it's so unusual and yet it's very um, – it's kind of an everyman story for people who are immigrants or children of immigrants. You know, I'm 53. I just turned 53. And so my growing up time, I moved to Kentucky when I was three. I was born in South Dakota. And um, a different time in Kentucky, you know, certainly my mother knew the other four or five uh, half, they were all Japanese. Uh, half Japanese families that were in Kentucky, nearish Henderson, Kentucky, where I was from, uh, they would all get together, you know, when they could have meals or whatever, hang out together, and their kids could see other kids that were half, right? Sure. But it was very, uh, it was actually very violent and dangerous, to be honest with you. And that's not something I've talked about freely. Um, in the press, but I think it's important, and I'm starting to be very honest about it, because my father was in the service, you know, traveling. I am an, I'm an army brat without the brat. Uh, we didn't travel with him. We stayed in Kentucky, which, you know, I may not have chosen for myself as a kid, and yet, looking back as a 53-year-old, I think it really uh, left an indelible mark on me in ways that are so different than most people. I think I wouldn't trade it for anything now because it made me who I am and made me unusual in this industry. Uh, what I can bring to the table is very different than most. And I can identify with many <laughs> in a different way. It was, it was, you know, the 60, late sixties, early seventies. And listen, there were, I lived in the projects. Uh, from a very young age. Of course, we moved maybe three times to better neighborhoods each time, but we lived in Lawndale Apartments. Um, and I've said that to my high school 
I started going back talking to my high school, and a little girl came up to me, not a little girl, she was a black uh, young woman who was probably 15 or 14, crying at the end of my talk and was shaking. And I said, are you okay? And she said, you know, I just need a hug. So I hugged her, and she said, you've helped me so much. Oh, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> she said, I, I grew up a block away in a different, you know, set of projects next to Lawndale, and you've helped me so much by doing this talk. So, you know, it, there were race riots where I grew up. I, at three years old, stopped a race riot with the cops bringing me home, wow. uh, not knowing that that's what I was doing because I was the only person during that, it wasn't a huge race riot, but it was at our projects, blacks on one side, whites on the other. Like people were not living, you know, different races together in those projects. It was definitely a dividing line and I must have been in between, you know. So I saw a lot. My mother was just trying to get gasoline with her two mixed kids and had guns pulled on her, wow. you know. She was so fierce. <laughs> I'm so impressed with my mother because she hid that stuff so well. Um, you know, she's four nine. She is so tiny, but she is fucking formidable. If you think about what she went through and even as a single woman, forget it, but as a brown skinned single woman in a tiny town that has never seen someone like her, that was really intense. And listen, I've had stuff happen with my little brother going not exactly to that town, but on the outskirts of it, you know, eight miles away where they wouldn't serve. There was an older woman in a hamburger stand that is actually owned by a classmate of mine that I graduated with. Her family owns the chain of hamburger stands. And um, I'm not going to say the name, but that's, that will do it. <laughs> that will narrow it down. And it's so tiny. And there was an older white sort of grandmother uh, at the back of the counter and maybe two others, two kids, and she saw myself and my brother and wouldn't serve it and went to the back. I took a break. And this was only five years ago or less. So that sort of tells you in this age that we're living in today, you know, uh, all the confusion and the, the turmoil that our, our own Gilead commander is stirring up. <clears throat> you know, it's going to be the same as when I was growing up in the sixties and seventies and it's really disheartening and all it wants me, all it makes me want to do is have a stronger voice and to be very honest about that stuff and combat it in, yeah. in any way that I can Absolutely. for youth that are coming up. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it, when you're in an industry like uh, the TV and film industry, I know the, sometimes the default stance of productions and companies that are trying to get people to buy or watch their product is to kind of take no stance um, with political things and all of the you know hot button issues um, so it's refreshing to hear you yeah. say that and I think what this shows is that it it's getting harder to not take a stance I think the more stuff that comes yeah. out yeah you know and you know I've been lucky no one stopped me right. and yet I don't think I would be able to not tell the truth what do I have to lose you know is my is my saying and there's there's a lot that not not me but other people have to gain from the truth and I think that whether people say what their stance is they certainly have deep-seated feelings whether for good or evil <laughs> positive or negative and I think 
it's always best to tell the truth no matter what. I often think I shouldn't say certain things to sort of preserve to sort of preserve my parents um, you know their well wishes sure. and their community and yet you know I, I often wonder if I was I've always kind of been the truth teller in my family and always the person who just said what was what but I wonder if within all my friends you know black and white growing up in high school you know, I don't know if I told them the truth about many of these things because it's not stuff that you talked about in the South and certainly not in that time. And and now I don't care because I feel like it's it's important and people need to know how to circumvent that in the future and not have it be a thing and not have it be the norm, you know? There's no need for it. And we're already... <laughs> going to be in trouble with uh, the way our president is rolling. And I just feel like, yeah, I, I don't know. As uh, I, I said, I completely the agree. truth is everything. Yeah, it, I, it, there's no point anymore in really couching it or holding <laughs> it back. It, it, it does more harm yeah. than good. And nobody I think, wins. Right, no, nobody know? wins. And I think it's just trying to get yeah. past this point of there's a lot of these people that, oh, you know, not, not, there's a lot of this almost like in Handmaid's Tale, which is like we were asleep before. Like people are just like, oh, it's not that bad. Nothing's going to happen. But you and right. the other uh, people who are a biracial or have minority racial heritage have seen how all this stuff goes down and what the effect of it truly is. And being in the majority yeah. – uh, you don't always see that effect. So I think you're more apt to be like, oh, you know, so stuff happens. Um, so again, I think it's just raising awareness and keeping the word out there so that people finally will wake up somehow. You know, I agree. And I want to say that I recently, within the last two weeks, read something that a, a beautiful, strong, good writer, Jewish woman uh, writer in New York, Bren Leibowitz, if you look her up, there's two amazing uh, things that I tweeted, but she also, you know, said them. She was saying it's not about understanding what it's like to be black in America. It's about understanding what it's like to be white and not, and I'm paraphrasing her now, but it's not about leveling the playing field. It's about understanding that, the playing field was created by white people. So you have to have an additional awareness of what it takes for people to get where they are, whether it's in the industry or in life, wherever, you know, um, for people of color, it took a lot more to get there. And I think that's a really helpful quote by someone who is, you know, Jewish, white and Jewish and a woman who it was a very resonant thing to say and quite honest and I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I, I had seen I, I had seen that you yeah. tweeted that out and I I, I yeah. thought that that very succinctly said exactly what I think needs to be said in this day and age. Man. So that kind of dovetails a little bit into with the evening of the playing field. I wanted to get your take if you don't mind on some of the uh controversy over Asian and Japanese things that are happening in Hollywood as far as opportunities go, yeah. actors go. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that would be something you were okay with discussing. <laughs> I'm always okay with discussing everything. Excellent. I'll be honest. You know, I, I tend to be at work a lot, for mm -hmm. better or for worse. I'm always constantly working with, 
you know, little downtime. And the short amount of downtime is when I cram in what's happening in the world. Now, of course, I've been aware that there have not been, um, you know, Asians in Hollywood represented as well as any of the other groups. Um, It, of course, bothers me. I'm not going to lie. I have not... I don't know if you want to talk, you know, specifically about certain films that are coming out. Um, Well, the direction I was going here, I I have a little bit of an outline. So I saw one thing, just doing the research on this, because it was kind of something interesting that I thought we could explore. CNN had a very interesting headline, kind of attention grabber, that talked about the lack of diverse roles for Asian actors and actresses in Hollywood. And they called it Beyond Nerds and Ninjas, which was a very interesting way to put it. And kind of encompasses, I beyond think, what? beyond nerds and ninjas, which I think they're saying that, you know, oh God. <laughs> there, there's these stereotypical <laughs> roles that Asian actors tend to get pigeonholed as. Yeah. So there's a number yeah. of things going on beyond just the opportunities. There's the whitewashing issue with some of the films that have recently yeah. come out. Like uh, there was Tilda Swinton with Doctor Strange, Matt Damon doing a great wall movie. Yeah. I made a list because I needed to for myself. Uh, of some improvements <laughs> because I think there, you know, there are, have been some marginal improvements with Fresh Off the Boat, which is a great show. Um, if you've ever right. watched that, I know the big thing that's coming yeah. up is this Crazy Rich Asians, which is a very successful novel that is being adapted into a is movie. It? Yeah, uh, it's, oh, it's God. yeah, I it's like a bestseller. I want to preface with I am probably the most boring interview because I don't see anything until years later. <laughs> I'm always behind and I never turn on the TV. How about that for growth in terms of working in the industry, but never seeing anything. And so I've never seen Fresh Off the Boat. I've heard that. I've heard that it's amazing writing and great, you know, premise. But I, I, and I have not seen, the Tilda Swinton thing killed me because she's sort of a personal icon for me. I adore her. And it was a bit sad, but, you know, I thought, well, I'm probably not going to see the film. And so, listen, I'm going to write those shows. There you go. I am. And I I mean, I really am. And if I can't, oh, let me go back inside. It's too loud. If I, um. If I can't write them, then then I'll figure out how to help, you know, get them shown. But it's like before I finish work, which, you know, Okinawans live till they're past 100. I've got about 50 more years. <laughs> I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> I'm going to figure it out, Justin. Yeah, I know? think we, uh, when we did, uh, as I mentioned, we did some of the Emmy nomination reaction stuff. And we got into a whole conversation about this genre shows, more or less, being more upfront now. Like, uh, you know, Westworld and uh, Stranger Things, the... Uh, opportunity that there is to release things uh, more freely and create and not have to be constrained to the studio uh, Hollywood machine as much. I think that that is how these things are going to change is the people that want to get them made, making them and making them well. Yeah. And I think there's more opportunity to do that now than ever. Um, with the Crazy Rich Asians thing, the, the thing I found out about that, so th- it is a completely Asian cast. It is being produced by a major Hollywood wow. studio, and it is a completely Asian cast, which I thought I read a number of weeks ago that it was the first one that was completely Asian, but what I read today was that the Joy Luck Club is the last sh- movie that was an all-Asian cast, and that was in 1993. Oh, I know. <laughs> don't think I don't, <laughs> like, know. Oh, oh, don't I get it. Like I've <laughs> I mean, listen, that's like... That that film is like one that I will always go back to, like my dirty little secret, you know, for like 
crying and like all Asian, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, I know that. I know that. And that is wrong. But we can figure it out. We still got time. I like your attitude. So you know, it, it, there is at some point you get tired of talking about it, even though I think it's important to bring attention to it because I think a lot of people just, you know, there have been more opportunities and it's gotten better. I'm not saying it hasn't gotten better, <laughs> and, uh, but it's. You got to do a whole nother, you got to do a whole nother podcast, Justin, with me and, and whoever else I'm in. we can think of it, talking about this because. First of all, I want to figure out which studio is doing that because I'm going to applaud them. But also, you know, Asians, I mean, like, I've read great articles about this, and, and I can count them on both hands, and that's it, you know, in terms of articles which spoke to me about the current state of why, the why there are not more Asians represented. And, you know, I think it honestly comes down to really simple stuff and I think it's because we're a quiet cultural group we know you know this this cliche perhaps immigrant mentality of going in and working our asses off and working our asses working harder (laughs) than other people to get ahead you know like the Asian work ethic is cliche but true Sure. And certainly something my mother instilled. My mother's still working, and she's 80. And, wow. you know, my middle name, she gave me the middle name of work. So I'm <laughs> kidding. But, I mean, like, I love working. And so, you know, it's. I think we're the most, you know, on paper only benign uh, for people of color that can be scooped under the rug. People don't have to notice because maybe we won't make a fuss. And right. I'm being, you know, other people talking about us right now. And, you know, sometimes it gets frustrating um, reading people, you know, criticism of Hollywood with the black issues that are happening. And yet, listen, they have been quite verbal, especially recently, but for way longer than Asians so like we got to get on board and actually start telling the truth and not be passive and not be you know quietly moving along without saying the truth and I would love to be a part of that podcast I will help you organize that well I would definitely look into that (laughs) I I appreciate appreciate you being behind that if it happens uh so just to give uh the you asked who was producing the crazy rich Asians movie it is Warner Brothers is the distributor. The production oh, huh. companies are Color Force, SK Global, and Warner Brothers. That is who is doing. Okay. So oh, there you go. So up. give a little awesome. kudos to them. I did ask yeah. um, some of our people when we were online, asked for some social media questions. So the vast majority oh, cool. of what people want to know, I think. And uh, you're going <laughs> to have to be very creative with your words here. Um, season okay. two. Everyone wants to know about season two and what, uh, especially with you specifically, what you'll be able to do now that you're not necessarily constrained by things that are known in the uh, known universe of Gilead. Okay, you're going to hear radio silence now. I can't tell you anything. (laughs) (laughs) And that's fair. No, I mean, I really can't because I I was only verbally told... um, uh, a kind of overview by Bruce. I went to the writer's room last week and all I can say is that, and this is trying hard not to let you guys down. It's, you know, it is incredibly thrilling and exciting and it won't be all a hundred percent new, but there will be many, many, 
uh, new environs uh, to explore that will take us in very dramatic places across the board for all the characters. Um, and I am very excited by all of that. I have to say, I have to give a shout out to one of my best friends in the whole world, who's also my brother. Uh, I call him my brother. He's that close. Is Mark White, who is the new production designer of The Handmaid's Tale. And um, I asked them to to look at him as a potential candidate, and they they said yes to him. So he is in Toronto now uh, working on those secret scripts, and we hope to create a beautiful, you know, symbiotic uh, world for you guys. Of course, Gilead is still there. It's, you know, it's a story about Gilead, but there will be um, adventures aplenty, 100%, I assure you. Don't go anywhere. Excellent. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I figured it was going to be um, limited to what you could tell us, if anything at all. So I appreciate you giving well, what, what you gave listen, us. Well, I mean, I, I can't lie. Like, there's, I don't have the actual story. I just have an overview. So right. I'd be lying if I said I have the actual story. Well, we appreciate yeah. you not lying to us. Honesty is fantastic. <laughs> Um, so before we go, uh, so as a woman working her way in Hollywood, what advice, um, if any, um, could you give to other costume designers, women and girls, even you know, men that are coming up through this industry? Because obviously yeah. it's probably the film industry historically and stereotypically is a hard slog for even the best of people. Um, so what kind of uh, advice could you give uh, any aspiring people? And I will give a little bit of shout out. I have a, a director that is doing a film that uh, Madeline Brewer and Ann Dowd are starring in. And, uh, it's a movie called Hedgehog, Anne. and she said, oh, our costume designer loves Ann Crabtree and is, like, inspired by her. So I told her I would name check her. That is Victoria Cameron. Uh, she was the uh, oh, costume cool. designer on this film called Hedgehog, which will be coming out that I've watched. It's fantastic with Madeline Brewer and Oh, Anne Dowd. man. So give us uh, – give Ann us Dowd? Yeah, Ann Dowd is I'm in sorry, it. She is, other... uh, Madeline Brewer, who played Janine, and then oh, Ann yeah. Dowd. Yeah, the, they're okay, they're I the stars. It's a independent picture, and I uh, we we did an interview with the director. She let me yeah. watch it. And we got a screener of it, and Janine or uh, Madeline Brewer's performance is outstanding, and Ann Dowd, as always, is oh, amazing. So we're really excited well, about I that. I love them. Oh, that's great. So advice, yeah. I mean, this is advice to everybody, male, female, you know, young, old, people of color. The biggest thing I want to say is. Do not give up and do not take no for an answer. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's coming from a person who was told no so many times. Um, I mean, far beyond, way before trying to be a costume designer, just trying to be a creative person in a little town and having no means. Like, no was a pretty pretty big word that I heard all the time. <laughs> And um, I'm surprised that it didn't stop me. But somehow, thank God, it didn't. And, you know, try to find people that can inspire you um, in little and big ways. Because without that, without having sort of folks that that you want to be like, uh, and they don't even have to be people that are in your neighborhood. They can be folks that are in books. You know, I read lots of books about designers somehow. I don't know why. Maybe I knew, but I, I read about uh, Coco Chanel, who I identified with because she was this 
uh, not that I was an orphan, but an orphan <laughs> in France, you know, who came from nothing. I, I think try to find inspirational people and stories that lift you and elevate you to a place that is beyond uh, seemingly impervious walls, you know, and um, and keep dreaming and keep, you know, just don't – don't keep yourself in a box. It's easy for the world to put you there, and uh, it's easy to put yourself there. And I've certainly done that, my own share of that as well. But I would say the never give up part is to keep moving forward in the direction that feels like your direction, your own. Don't try to mimic anyone, which is hard these days, and don't try to go on social media and um, – be very glossy <laughs> as an image because I think all of that is going to go to the wayside someday soon. I think be as authentic as you can and be as learned as you can. Try to get a really good education because that has um, – I didn't finish my education, I want to say, but the life education and the schooling that I did get um, have served me so well in this industry and – has given they've certainly have all given me a voice that is quite unique um you know study things like art history and shakespeare which is how i came to be a designer in a very sort of roundabout way finding your own way and creating your own voice is the one thing that's going to take you to a place that is uniquely yours um certainly you know projects like the handmaid's tale like westworld like luck Uh, masters of sex stories that are very well written where there are intelligent creative people involved they will recognize your gift if you're prepared um, and you're ready to work hard that's kind of my my uh, pat advice to anybody who's interested in doing this and uh, not being lazy and working hard and and you know for 28 years I've given an extra day of work I don't know how much money that adds up to, but it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I always throw in a sixth day of work for free because that is the most uh, quiet, inspiring day where I get most of the sketching done or the, the mental process done. You know, you have to be able to give to this work in order to succeed. You can't just dial it in. You can't be lazy. You can't get other folks to do it. And you have to invest intellectually, emotionally, and even physically into the work, um, or else you might as well just get a desk job, you know? I love it. Uh, last thing, I want to give you the chance to talk about anything else that you're doing. I know you're working on The Passage, a TV show that is uh, coming out for Fox, yeah. I believe. Yeah, it's Fox, and it's with um, Ridley Scott's company, Scott Free. And it is, I just did the pilot, so that's what I was doing in Georgia. And it's a trilogy. The Passage is the first one. Um, by Justin Cronin, and I've heard that they're hugely successful. Many kids and adults uh, are huge fans of the book and books, and um, it was really cool. The director is Marcus Marcos Siega, and the show's creator is Liz Heldon, and they both were beautiful people to create with. It's another dystopian story that 
focuses on present day and then a hundred years from now in the future. Oh wow! And um, the protagonist is a ten-year-old girl who uh, they cast this young. Uh, I think she's actually ten, and she's playing ten. Sanaya Sydney. She's the protagonist, and also Mark Paul. Um, Mark Paul Gosler. Gos- yeah, is the other lead. And um, it's phenomenal. And I want to say that Mark Paul is actually a hapa like me. <laughs> He's Indonesian, Dutch, uh, and white. And, really? um, and German. Yeah, and we found that out together. So there we go, Hollywood. You're doing something right. There you go. That's awesome. Uh, he's one of our leads. Yeah. So that's what I worked on in Georgia, and it should come out someday soon, and I think it's going to be super cool. And it talks about the breakdown of government and uh, kind of an experiment gone wrong, and um, and it's about survival. So it's a whole different kind of dystopian than The Handmaid's Tale. So I looked up uh, Sinai Sydney. As you mentioned, she's the 10-year-old actress Thank who's you. in this. And Help she, me out. yeah, she uh, most recently <laughs> did both Hidden Figures and Fences. So there you, you know, not there a, you go. Not oh a bad, God. not she not a one. couple bad films to have on your resume no. if you're ten years old. <laughs> when you're ten, and she's phenomenal. She's really a real little girl and an amazing actress. It's really cool and really scary. Excellent. <laughs> All right, well, Anne, I appreciate you taking the time once again, and uh, really appreciate you sticking around and talking to us for all the various subjects that we've just talked about. Um, we cannot say oh, enough yeah. great things about your work on The Handmaid's Tale. Ah, thank you so much, Justin. It, it's really been a pleasure. Once again, this is Justin with Mayday, The Handmaid's Tale podcast. We were speaking to Anne Crabtree, so for Tiana, who joined us earlier, I want to thank everyone for listening and thanking Anne Crabtree and all the folks at Hulu for helping us put this interview together, and we'll talk to everybody next time. Thank you.